Hey, this is Arthur Walker, author of the Euroboros Saga sci-fi series, and you're listening to Dead Hand Radio. This is Andrew Hall, host of Dead Hand Radio. My guest for this episode, Arthur Walker, is a writer, artist, philosopher, game dev, and consultant. He's a creator of worlds on page and on screen, and he's a brilliant individual. In this episode of Dead Hand Radio, Arthur and I discuss creative pursuits and share ideas about artificial intelligence, quantum computing, machine learning, and consciousness. Of course, an episode of Dead Hand Radio would not be complete if my guest and I didn't talk about the Cold War at some level. And during our discussion, we certainly do touch on the topic of the Cold War and how AI is connected to that time period. Finally, we close out our conversation with a jaunt into the post-apocalyptic genre and consider the possible or inevitable destruction of Earth and the potential for humans with the help of AI to prevent that from happening. It was a very intellectually stimulating conversation and I'm so glad to have had the opportunity to explore these topics with someone like Arthur. Dead Hand Radio, Arthur. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. What state do you actually live in? I live in Kansas. Oh, okay. Uh, I live in the in Wichita, I'm in the literal belly button of America. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, so Wichita is a fairly big city, though. It's not like what you would think of it as Kansas being wide open fields with uh you know nothing but plains for miles uh but but wichita is a fairly big city isn't it yes um i think the greater metropolitan area is about three hundred fifty thousand people and uh um i hesitate to say it but it is a pretty cool place to live um, I'm not from Kansas. I've been here about six years and I'm really enjoying it, but for, um, the kind of writing that I do and, um, I don't know, just my, just my work in general, this has been a really good place to be because of how centrally located it is. And the population density here is really low. So it's easy to get around and there's lots of good food to eat. Kansas knows how to, how to food really well <laughs> nice um what is their primary uh industry in that area uh aerospace yeah that's the airplane capital of the world yeah they do a lot of uh flight training and stuff here too oh, okay well a lot of wide open spaces uh in that area is there a military base nearby yeah, there's a couple, and there's uh, uh, one they, because um, I think because there's so much aerospace here, they wouldn't let us have a a hub 
type airport in addition. So we've got a kind of a small uh, commercial airport, but there's, I don't know, seven or eight private air, airfields or something in the area. It's, um, you know, you have this picture of there being just planes flying overhead all the time or something like that, but it's not, it's not really like that. It's um, a lot of blue collar people working on sites to build the airplanes and um, it kind of uh, adds to the concrete culture that is Wichita. And I kind of, uh, being from Idaho and kind of having a blue collar background, I'm just a little more comfortable here as a result, I think. Yeah, Idaho, man, you're talking about sparsely populated. That's <laughs> a, that, I don't know if it's, um, if they even have a, what you would call a big city in Idaho at all. No. <laughs> but a lot really. of forests and beautiful country over there. Yeah. Indeed, and I've hiked it all. It's a, it's a magical place to visit. Uh, I don't know exactly when we first connected on Twitter, but it was definitely through our mutual friend, Evan, uh, on Twitter. And uh, because he kind of, when he finds something that he enjoys, he raves about it. And I don't say that in a negative way. I mean, he just really likes to help people get noticed uh, for their work, for their contributions. And uh, it just got my attention. So I started looking at your books and I apologize, but I can't pronounce how the title of your books. Can you say it? Uh, Uroboros. Okay. For some reason, that's a, that's a hard word for me to pronounce. Oh, it's one of those words and it's got like different spell, like one of the major hurdles for me was trying to pick which of the various ways you spell that word I was going to use on the title. <laughs> um, not just to, you know, try to prevent uh, confusion, but also for ease of pronunciation. And there was no good choice. Like, but in, in terms of what an Ouroboros is and stands for, it's a really good, um, it's, it's uh, a really good uh, single stand-in for the series itself. So I, I ended up just kind of rolling with it <laughs> anyway. Cool. Cool. Well, I don't want to rehash a, a bunch of stuff that you've already talked about. I know that you did a pretty extensive discussion on the book series and the, some, some of the symbology that you integrated into the books on Evan's podcast. So I, I would like to refer people to go check out um, From the Wastes which I think I promote his podcast almost every episode because he's interviewed everybody that I'm talking to right now, but uh, he's a good guy and he, he deserves the exposure. That's wise on your part. Evan's a master content aggregator. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I follow him on Twitter is because he's authentic and doesn't shine me on whatever he finds. It's almost going to be durably good yeah. over time. So I agree. Well, present company included, because if it weren't for him, I don't know if I would have seen your books, but I'm glad I did. And I think I have all of them now, but I haven't finished all of them. Um, 
as I've said in a few other episodes, people are probably getting sick of me saying this, but I am a slow reader. Oh, I am too. And I'm, I'm probably four or five behind on every podcast I listen to also. <laughs> I've, never, I've never caught up on that. Uh, yeah, I, I recently think I, was it you that had reached out and were interested in finding somebody to do recordings for your books? Are you get, getting ready to turn those into audiobooks? Yeah, there's um, uh, a local, um, he, he works for, he's a, a, a reporter and weekend producer for a local news station. And uh, he reached out to me and was like, hey, I want to I wanna kind of break into uh, voice acting and voiceovers and stuff like that. And I said, well, um, it seems to me the, you know, I'm kind of a sci-fi guy, but uh, the post-apocalyptic communities sort of adopted me. And I'm glad because <laughs> it's a really good community. Um, and I, I said, I don't know if they have a go-to voice actor for their content, if they have somebody in the community that is sort of known. Like, I think the last person that I was aware of that kind of did that was one of the first people on Evan's podcast. And uh, I do uh, game development um, with a partner and we, we do video games for mobile platforms. And we started looking for, uh, we put out a call for voice actors and we got like all kinds of people, um, uh, everything from people who had never done it before to um, people that had done voiceovers for like anime on TV and stuff. And we were like, uh, wow, okay, so this is kind of a crowded place. And that's, you know, when I started doing, you know, kind of doing some uh, consulting with uh, the guy I'm talking to about doing audiobooks. For me, I was like, you know, you need to find, you need to find a, I don't know, a, 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 a niche somewhere to, somewhere to land uh, a community or, or, or somewhere that um, is kind of going to be where you live and where you're known, um, somewhere to start. And that's why I asked if the PA community had anybody. And, and this guy's, um, he's a younger guy and he's kind of getting, you know, he's, he's uh, I think immensely talented and he's got a good voice cause he did, he's done radio and he's done TV. Um, and he's uh, done, you know, uh, production for TV and radio. So I, I think he has the skill set to do it. And I just recently was like, I handed him um, and you'll, you'll think I mean, I, I went through and I found what was probably going to be arguably the hardest, one of the hardest chapters in my books to do, <laughs> to do audio for and said, well, script this and make me a sample and, and we'll see what happens. Um, and he's like, well, what about bringing in other people and having more than one voice? And I said, let's just work on whether or not you and I can work together. Let's just work on whether or not, you know, you are comfortable doing this with me because if you're not let's find somebody you would be um, that you will work with um, and uh, I find that especially during the pandemic I do a lot of that um, kind of career consulting with people to try to uh, for some reason 
I don't know how, why I end up being in this position all the time, but I, I really enjoy um, just helping people build legitimacy. And I think for most of the people trying to break into these creative fields, um, that's all they lack is just the understanding that building legitimacy takes time and connections and, and a friend named Evan. <laughs> Probably. That's helpful. That is helpful. True. <laughs> uh, so staying on that topic for just a, a couple more minutes, um, you are a game designer. Do you do programming as well? Or mostly just do the artwork? I, I'm kind of the creative director for, uh, for Raging Rickshaw. Um, I'm not kind of, I am, I am the creative director for Raging Rickshaw. Um, my, my business partner um, is a programmer and he, uh, he's worked for, uh, uh, coincidentally, he's worked for aerospace and he's worked for Microsoft and um, he's working for um, digital, he's worked for a couple of digital identity firms. Um, and so he and I, I'm, a philosopher by training and have kept my training current. So he and I talk about artificial intelligence and digital identity and all that kind of stuff during our game development. And um, uh, I, <sighs> I, can, I can program and I can parse enough of what we're doing in whatever developmental paradigm we're using to edit and do things, but it's not like, it's not a skill that I market other than to um, set up a web page for my dad's motorcycle club. Like I just don't, it's not a, it's a thing, it's a thing I can do, but it's not a thing I want, I necessarily want to do. And my partner would prefer I didn't. <laughs> Fair enough. He's, he's he, he wants me he wants me poking pixels and making textual assets and building uh user interface and user experiences and and things like that because that's really where i'm just sort of better at it um like i know enough of the programming side to break what we're doing <laughs> not and not, not, not probably not fix it so um yeah do you so this is a company that you and a partner primarily run yeah, well, so my my development partner, um, we met in the eighth grade, and we've been trading a floppy disk back and forth ever since, pretty much, working on games. Um, so I've known him more than 25 years, and um, we... Uh, started getting involved in game jams with kids and uh, the basically they're like a weekend where you have like 48 hours to build a game and he would go in and and drop the basis for the programming and help the kids get it off the ground and I would drop um, user experiences whether that was visual assets or um, UI or uh, user interface, you know, buttons and, and, you know, Chrome for the outside, you know, to give it, to give the, the, the user experience form. And we did one where, um, the kids were 
kind of looking at wanting to publish. And to a lot of platforms, you have to have some, you can't, it's hard to publish as an individual um, and still have, uh, like I was saying before, legitimacy. So we decided here recently that we were going to put together an LLC to help these kids. You know, it, I mean, we publish our own stuff under our name, but we don't necessarily go to all the platforms. So we went. It, we found that if we were going to publish for other people, we probably needed to have some actual edifice, legal edifice thereof um, to not just lend ourselves legitimacy, but lend the kids' efforts legitimacy and and to make it simpler when. Uh, publishing to certain platforms like Steam. And uh, so, yeah, that's kind of how that happened. We were just helping kids, and then suddenly we were a game company. I don't know. Is that your day job? I do a lot. I do consulting um, for um, uh, companies looking to push uh, physical assets to digital. So like if someone who uh, recently we had someone who um, they do card games um, and they wanted to reach out to the di digital medium, but they needed to have all their for print assets um, set up to be used in tabletop simulator on Steam, which is um, basically an understanding of, of what is going to run best um, on that platform. And it's not like the old days where you had to count pixels to make sure you weren't maxing out the RAM of the device because most, most devices will run almost anything. But it's more about um, the time it takes for those assets to load and appear over the internet on a reasonable connection. So it was about getting the assets sized and, and parsed into the right resolution and then having them packaged in a way that, um, you know, a deck of cards could be uh, read and rendered by a tabletop simulator so that people could play the card game online with each other and their friends and family over the internet. And then we set up um, a uh, support uh, edifice on Steam for people to reach out to us if they needed help. So that's that's one way I earn money is by doing stuff like that. Um, I, I've also been investing and I, I wouldn't say, I would you know, I've, I've been kind of playing on the stock market since I was 13. And um, when I uh, uh, started getting into investing, it just was another game to me. And that's kind of one of the, uh, uh, it winds around to being, you know, part of the backdrop of my books too, because um, it's a financial, it's a fiscal apocalypse, a global fiscal apocalypse that kind of rounds out my series and after book one. So a lot of that came from, you know, having some actual, uh, uh, contact with <laughs> with finance with financial markets and understanding how they work and how they can break and all that kind of stuff. So that's the really uh, it's probably a really long explanation of what I do, but that's kind of what I do. <laughs> I, do I do lots of things. Okay, so if you were to round it down to 
like one sentence in summary you do multiple you have multiple ventures and primarily they they involve the financial market the gaming market and you like to use your brain a lot so what, what it boils down to i guess right i yeah i, I think I think I'm. I, I think at my core, I'm a writer, and then that's if whenever when anybody needs me to describe myself in a word, that's what I tell them. I'm an author, and because all that other stuff is sort of a, it's sort of stuff I live. It's sort of stuff I do to live, and writing is what I live to do. <laughs> I guess. Oh, that's cool. That's a good way to look at it. My, my spreadsheet, um, you know, when I look at my spreadsheet and I see where my, where my revenue, you know, where my income comes from, I, it, I don't let that define who or what I am for the most part in, in the way that some people do. Um, not speaking from any lofty place or anything, but it's just, you know, I, and this is all kind of recent too. Like I, I I'm literally um thinking out loud right now that's okay and if <laughs> if you say anything that you want me to omit just tell me what it is and i'll make sure it's not included oh no i'm i just i i um this is kind of my this is kind of my mode right in in general is is um if you ask me a question, I make I, I am tangent man. I will wander if you if you let me. <laughs> well, you can wander as far as you want off the topic. I'll try to rein it back in, but it may lead down other rabbit holes, and we might never find our way back. Because I like to explore, you know, I like to explore areas that are not normally really covered. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've, I've had people on the podcast to talk about UFOs and that's kind of a big thing right now. A lot of people are getting into UFOs now because of mm -hmm. what's in the news. Um, but I also like to talk about nuclear weapons, you know, and that's something that makes a lot of people feel really uncomfortable um, because of the destructive power, the implicated political implications of, you know, nuclear annihilation and different things. Well, the things that I am, uh, you know, I try consciously to stay away from is politics and religion. <laughs> you know, I have my own views on that and I don't intend to push that on anybody. But at the same time, um, you know, I, I don't want to end up in a debate with somebody and, you know, just have it turn into... Uh, you know, I, I think the only thing that I would say about politics and religion is that it seems to me like everybody wants to be right and nobody's willing to listen to the opposing argument. That's, yeah. about, that's about where I would leave it. Well, those two things, um, I think you, I mean, those two things are kind of joy stealers. That... <laughs> that's a good way to put it. And that they they enter into people's implicit memory and become part of the tapestry of their lives to the degree that they're they confuse 
those aspects of their environment with their own identity. And I was talking to my dad the other day about this. And I said, you know, when I was trying, when I was seeking joy, I was trying to understand what, what, um, what joy looked like for me. I, I told him that, um, and this is like the, the nerdiest possible thing you could say, but I, I told him that I think that prediction error is the thing that gives me the greatest amount of joy. And so when I go into a situation, like I go into a podcast to talk to you and I have expectations, but it goes way better than I think it will. I get joy from that, but that's prediction error, right? Like I've had the expectation that it would be one way and it was significantly better and that granted me joy. So when people internalize politics and religion and, and other things that where they um, assign them value relative to their identity and those things enter into their implicit memory where they become an automatic part of their daily lives, those expectations um, almost never get met, which is why I think they steal people's joy. I mean, because you're never going to wake up and, and think about your politics, your religion in any kind of different way. They're never going to surprise you. They're never going to be um, they're never going to be novel and, um, having a conversation about them only sort of reminds us how joyless and, and unpleasant those things can be as a consequence because they feel necessary in our lives. And I, um, try really hard not to have religion or politics enter my implicit memory. <laughs> I, I try really hard to have things like bike rides and meditating and uh, ice cream. What you just said is the most fascinating conversation I've ever had about politics or religion ever. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if we were to talk about it on that level, which is more of an analytical view of what those two topics represent in, in people's lives that's an interesting approach to talk about it in that in that aspect i would be happy to talk about it but people get so caught up in their own ideas about what you know what they want to believe they don't they don't want to expand their mind and that's really like you said man that's what brings true joy is by by experiencing life in a way that's new and interesting as often as possible. Yeah, I mean, I think for creatives, particularly the span, you know, kind of the reset point between epiphany and the time it takes having, you know, when you, let's say you're a painter and you paint a painting and you have some really strong epiphany about the work that you just did, whether it's a painting or a podcast or a book or anything. I think it takes a little bit for the mind and it's different for everybody to kind of get to a reset point for that to feel novel again. So it's kind of like if you have a favorite TV show and you don't watch it for a year, then you go back and watch it again. It's like watching it again for the first time. And I feel like for me, you know, my reset point for writing is way narrower than it is for doing digital art. Like, I feel like I can do a pretty serious piece of digital art maybe once a month, but I can write five, six K words a day. And that just comes from uh, the practice thereof, I think in some ways. 
And I think in other ways, there's all kinds of other, you know, factors that go into a person that allow them to have a narrower reset point. But like when I see people really struggling with, um, and I'm about to tell you all my secrets. Um, one of the things I discovered about that is um, how much the somatic ritual of creating is a component. And so um, I have like four or five keyboards and I've got one that's, um, I have my, I have a 60% keyboard, which is um, like uh, 60 some keys. It's 60% of a full keyboard with 10 key. And it's a little harder to type on because you sort of have to remember where the function keys are and it's got, you know, two layers of programming in it. So when I am typing on a full-size keyboard and I get blocked, I'll switch to that one. And it makes me type more, type and write more deliberately. And I have to think a little harder about what I'm doing. And the process suddenly becomes novel just because I've added a different keyboard. When that one gets to the degree where I start to feel blocked, I have a 40% keyboard that's like 43 keys and it has four layers of programming. <laughs> so, yeah, so, and one of the layers isn't represented on the caps, on the keycaps. So you have to remember where things are. Like you have to, I, I pick it up and I have to be like, okay, where's the question mark again? <laughs> and that unlocks me. It makes the process, you know, the, the, the tactile somatic component of the process novel again. So I'll be like riding along and I just will switch keyboards. And that's, that's how I'm able to sort of write at the volume that I do um, is, is by literally just varying that small component. And I'm sure all, I'm sure all creatives have some variation thereof, uh, but that's mine. Um, I think you're right. I think it does get to a, a point where you do something so second nature and where you don't even have to think about the, the act of doing it. Um, although I have heard people say that that's where they get into their most creative state of mind is when they're, um, whatever they're doing, whether it's painting or they're, writing a, a novel um they their body goes on autopilot and they don't have to think about what they're doing and their their creative or their subconscious mind kind of takes over and almost takes takes it to a new level of of awareness does that happen when you're because it sounds like you like to challenge yourself uh, oh no, totally. Um, I, uh, well, I mean, one of the way, one of the reasons I got into uh, doing uh, uh, sort of brand advocacy was because I was looking for the perfect writing and digital art device. You know, something that would be an all-in-one. And uh, I think back in 2013, um, I found I kind of found it. And that kind of started, you know, but it was, you know, kind of a first gen product. And from there, I just started looking kind of out into the various communities that I uh, engaged and saw a lot of people having the same struggles. And I was like, hey, I found a thing. 
and that was so immensely useful. Um, and I have some uh, technical background in that I worked at a cyber cafe in college and um, repaired computers. So I have just enough, just enough knowledge of hardware to sort of be able to understand and parse the industry better than uh, uh, the average, per you know, maybe a little better than the average person. And uh, um, whenever I find something that very strongly um, syncs up with me or my process in terms of gear, yeah, like my wife will have to, my wife will come over and be like, it's time to eat. And I'd be like, lunch? And she's like, a late dinner. <laughs> like, I, will be, <laughs> I, will, I mean, that, that um, um, sort of state of serendipity where you and the machine that you're using or the tools or whatever um, just happen to align in that moment and you're able to just make a thing is... Um, uh, kind of at the at the top end of the arc after your reset point. Um, I'm not so nerdy that I've charted. I haven't actually charted my own um, my own productivity. I know people that do though, which I think is fascinating. But um, I think that there is um, something about how humans parse and create knowledge relative to creative pursuits that we don't fully understand. And I hope we never do. I kind of like that it's mysterious. So when I, you know, look up six hours later and it feels like 30 minutes went by and I have um, a beautiful thing that I've made I'm in the middle of, you know, weeks of making crap because I make a lot of crap. <laughs> But like, you know, that, that one time when you just, everything syncs up, those are, um, I don't know, they're, they are the, uh, for creatives, they're kind of the, the theophany of the processes on the, on, in the, on, at the opposite of the epiphany. So I would, I would use the term, the, the true reward of doing something creative is by getting into that mode where almost everything else melts away and you're in the zone. And by, at the end of it, you have something that you've created that you're happy with. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with you, man. Um, and those, those moments are kind of hard to come by and far in between. For real, yeah. I guess if you could do that every single time you sat down, then it wouldn't have the same, it wouldn't have the same uh, impact, I guess. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's almost like a drug where if you use it, the more you use it, the more that you have to use it to get the same effect. I have kind of a more sunny way of looking at it. In okay. the... <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to be all dark and gloomy. No, man. no, I, I, um, uh, let me turn down my technical death metal here. Um, uh, <laughs> the, uh, 
the uh, the thing I th I think uh, that and I wouldn't say that my my way of explaining is is particularly sunny. It, it, it a lot of people really don't like this explanation, but I think the the artist is 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 what is valuable, and we're seeking to in t with time and patience make what you know our art valueless to us. Oh, so yeah. yeah, I've heard that before. The thing that you know was a a crowning achievement last year for me um is this year just the everyday it becomes you know just part of the next 500 hours of practice before i you know break out of the plateau and and figure out something new to do with whatever craft i'm working on so um I get into philosophical debates with other artists about what the what, how how to value work, and I think um, I've used I've tried every kind of fuel there is: um, depression, uh, anxiety. I've I've used my writing as therapy. Um, I've written some very dark things that I hope never get published. Just I'm putting it in my will to my posterity. Burn this box. Uh, but <laughs> uh, so I mean, in terms of like uh, the artists, uh, it, it feels like at the top end, you are making whatever you did obsolete, you know, in the future, and that's the hope. And that kind of makes what you've done um before of less and less value other than to see the virtue of the process from the outside or for yourself and when you talk about it being kind of like a drug i think um that state of epiphany is so rare because of i mean i don't know where the human race would be without it in a lot of ways because you know, our evolutionary fitness is so heavily based around being able to parse the world in a way that convinces us that it doesn't suck. And art kind of lets us break out of that evolutionary fitness and kind of step above it and be like, no, life is actually better than not bad. <laughs> it is good. And I think without that fitness, we would just be very sad. <laughs> well, I think that it depends on what you put value on, you know, do you? Oh, true. Very true. Yeah. Because for me, the, the uh, ultimate joy is spending time with my family. I, I enjoy doing creative pursuits, the podcast, the, the graphic design that I do, that kind of stuff. I enjoy doing that. And it, it's, um, it is greatly rewarding when I get into a mode where creativity just takes over everything else. But nothing gives me as much joy as being with my family, watching my grandson run around and have a good time, uh, taking walks with my wife. So that, that's what I personally uh, apply value to. And I try to live in that space 
as often as I can. Um, and I know other people have different, um, different things that they put value on. So I've talked to photographers and people that enjoy exploring the outdoors. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they do their day job. And that's what, like you said, that's what they do to live. But what they live to do is usually something different. And it's very rare that a person does what they love and is able to make a living doing that. Yeah, usually what you like pays the least. And <laughs> what, you, what you like the, the least pays the most. The reason that you and I originally agreed to talk, and it's great that we're talking about other things because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a getting to know you kind of a kind of conversation, but um, we agreed to talk about artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And if you're familiar with it, I'd like to talk about the origin of AI a little bit, because that relates to very closely to what the podcast theme is about. And that's the cold war. Mm -hmm. um, I have sort of a, a broader uh, sense of what an intelligent agent is than most people. But I think, you know, relative to a modern context, um, I think it's always, I think the idea of, of creating intelligence or, or, or harboring knowledge for human beings um, goes back a long ways, but we're um, finally reaching a technological level in the last few decades where that can be externalized in any sort of, you know, tangible form outside of the, you know, outside of, you know, theory on chalkboard. Um, but I'm really curious about, um, where you think the origin of AI comes from. I, I, I talked to a lot of, um, I, I, it seems like everybody's got their own sort of um, view on it and none of them are wrong. I think, I think that everybody kind of has um, in some way, uh, uh, we, we externalize the notion that that um, humans are different from animals, but that we're able to actually um, create placeholders or ex uh, extensive parts of our identity that that kind of stand in, um, like the, uh, the 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 comparison that the spider web is is an extension of the spider's cognitive desire to capture flies humans do similar things so i'm really interested to hear what you think about the origins of ai please if you're talking about me personally my mm -hmm. first um understanding of ai would have been the movie uh war games where the computer basically figures out how to play games because mm -hmm. of this kid and it has the um it has the ability to launch nuclear weapons so that's kind of where i first learned about artificial intelligence even though you know i think that movie came out in the 80s 
and I didn't really understand what it was. I just knew that a computer could um, perform on a level that was superior to a human in intellect and but at the level of a the cognitive level of a child and so that was intriguing to me but then um you know i was never really big into computers even in school i was um i was in uh i think it was high school and there was a computer class which i took and you know in that computer class back then it was all i think it was dos back then and this would have been the early 80s so like 1980 81 where the only thing you could do was tell the computer what to do if this then that kind of statements you know and you could write little programs and i had friends that were writing games and doing things like that and i barely understood what I was doing, you know, I, I was able to basically copy somebody else's code and make the computer do what it was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And that was it. So that was my understanding of computers in the eighties. I didn't really have anything to do with computers until, um, well, I, I took, um, I had some friends in the Air Force that played like rudimentary video games. I think they played the game Risk on the computer and a couple of other uh, rudimentary video games. Um, and that would have been in the in the mid 80s, like 87, 88. But there was no real, well, I guess there was some some AI, but it was all pre-programmed. You know, it mm-hmm. wasn't machine learning it hadn't evolved to that level yet but um when i got really into computers and really started learning what computers could do was in the 1999 to 2000 and it it started out with gaming i did you know i played some games and it was um it was a lot different that 10-year 10 or 12 year um, expanse between when I played the, that very basic rudimentary game of risk to, I, I don't even remember what the video game was now, but it was like little cars driving around and stuff. And the graphics had evolved. Um, but the, the, um, the AI of the games was still all pre-programmed. You know, it wasn't really learning uh, from it, from its own origin, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> now, over the years, I've had like a, like a basic interest in artificial intelligence. And I wouldn't call myself a, an expert or even um somebody who's knowledgeable of it, but I have had an interest in it. I've looked into it and I, I learned that, um, the, I don't know if it's the term AI or the concept of artificial intelligence originated in the age of philosophers, basically 
and mm-hmm. but that's about all I know uh, on that level. Uh, the the practical application of it started in the fifties. Well, early earlier than that, but between the the late forties and the early fifties is where they started to really um, put machines to work and and figuring out how to test machines. So I I think there's a sort of a a, a strata of artificial intelligence or intelligent agents. Um, and I, I mean, to say that they're uh, you know, a, a, a contrived sort of life form or, or, or semblance thereof is, um, uh, I, I think pretty, uh, I think it, I think it works. I mean, you, you think about um, where we are with machine learning now. Um, and a lot of the most rudimentary artificial intelligence or intelligent agents are still, um, widely employed. Um, I think one of the most fascinating intelligent agents are the, uh, um, there's a, uh, uh, a fuel manifold regulation system for motorcycles. Um, I'm trying to remember what they're called. DCPs or NCPs. Anyway, what it does is it's a device in your motorcycle that tracks your elevation, um, your location on a map, humidity, all that kind of stuff. And um, my dad told me about this because he loves motorcycles. But basically, it's just this little machine that responds to geographic stimuli to modify the way your motorcycle handles fuel consumption to make the bike ride as nice and smooth as possible. And that is, I think, uh, that's an intelligent agent. That is a mechanical thing reacting to stimulus to produce some sort of effect like the thermostat in your home. And those are, I think, the most rudimentary types of artificial intelligence. They they don't have any sort of level of sapience in the sense that they're never going to be able to teach themselves new things or um, uh, harness, harness, collect, and and produce uh, knowledge that they communicate to one another, but they're still responding to stimuli, just like a bacteria or a virus or um, any microorganism in the biological world. And um, when you go all the way up to... Um, so I'm sorry to interrupt you, man, but no, you, yeah. just, you kind of blew my mind right now when you equated a basically a computer program. Mm-hmm to a bacteria or a virus because I have never thought of those type of microbial objects or whatever they're called. Mm -hmm. I never thought of them as intelligent. They're just reactive, it seems. But the way you explained it right now, in order for something to react, it has to have 
some kind of a sensor or some kind of a input. Some something that says when this happens, when it rains, I go inside. Um, so, and I'm before we'll leave microbial intelligence to another podcast because it's a whole nother area of, really? of interest for me. Yeah. Well, in terms of, uh, I, I, it's something that I, ha I had to research pretty heavily in trying to design uh, the abilities for certain characters in my books. Because most of what I do in my books, I try to make sure that it's at least plausible. Um, so every, every ability that any of the characters possess or you know, weapons that are deployed or, you know, any circumstances that are contrived by virtue of technology in my books, I try really hard for there to be some basis in real science for that, because I feel like sci-fi authors have a sort of a responsibility to, to present science um, as real and as positive as possible, because I think real scientists have a really hard time communicating to that, to the public. I mean, when I, I was talking to a a physicist from Fermilab and he was, and I was like, what would you like me to tell my audience um, about what you do? And he says, tell them it's safe. People are afraid to, to fish in the pond outside our lab because they think that, <laughs> that we're doing something nefarious. There, you know, there's nothing going on. We're, we're literally using very small machines to count particles and figure out which direction they go based on certain things. And I was like, I was like, people are really that worried, and they're like, yeah, they have, they, they, we have a, a, a small particle accelerator or collider. You know, we have these different, you know, this, these different types of scary sounding equipment in our lab, and you only, there's no, you need a library card to get in. Like, there's no, there's nothing going on there that requires, you know, guys on Humvees with M60s guarding it. Um, but people are scared because they don't understand it, and I feel like sci-fi authors are supposed to explain all of that. So like when I have gone in to design artificial intelligence uh, for characters and artificially intelligent characters in my books, I've tried really hard to, um, one of my books was delayed because I realized that quantum capable artificial intelligences would probably have a very different worldview. And I went to a couple of different physicists who use um, artificial intelligence in quantum computing and asked a bunch of questions before I even wrote dialogue for those characters and, and kind of came to understand how quantum computing works, at least as we understand it now, and how they're using artificial intelligence to, to parse it. And um, uh, <laughs> the, um, the thing that I arrived to a lot with trying to convey to people what artificial intelligence looks like in or will look like in the future. Um, I, I try very hard to put those characters in a context that is both positive and realistic. Um, when I see um, uh, like, when I see artificial intelligences automatically being boxed into the um, skeletal human seeking destroyers, 
um, in, in all kinds of media. Like I understand that that's good for selling movies, but it's not necessarily good for making people understand the real science underlying artificial intelligence. And there's a lot of, I think, fear and misunderstanding about it. Um, so good point. we can stay on that point for just a few minutes um, because that's a, that's an important issue. Um, and it, it really goes to what you're saying about artists. I mean, uh, writers who are talking about these topics have a bit of a responsibility to, to help their audience or their, their readers understand a little bit about the tech that they're describing. Mm-hmm. And um, what you said is in your books, you try to put the tech into a more of a positive light um, and give it more of a spin of where it's something that's helpful to the characters. If it's real. Um, it, in um, in the places where um, <laughs> in the places where I can conceive of there being an outcome that is positive, um, there are some uh, uh, there are some situations. Um, uh, there's a lot of contrived beings in my books between metasapience and artificial intelligences, both. Uh, celestial and terrestrial uh, server bound AIs and ones that have a, have a, a physical avatar that they wander around in. And um, in designing dialogue and sort of a process for what those characters, how those characters see the world, it is hard to escape sometimes that notion that in the in in all in all sort of and this is this is gloom and doom but i think um <laughs> most of the time in those situations in those circumstances humans are going to be the bad guys and ais and contrived beings are going to be victims mm. um that's an interesting because, concept because a lot of people fear that ai is going to take over the world because its perception of human behavior and an AI's perception of human behavior is that humans are careless, wasteful, ignorant, and destructive, which is true. It is true that humans are those things, but that's not all they are. I think that it would depend on, um, you know, assume assume an artificial intelligence has um, a view of all of what constitutes human knowledge being science as it is stored on the internet or in various uh, edifices of higher education and so forth. And that that artificial intelligence has sapience relative to that of a human being. I think that um, in the strata of possible outcomes that an artificial intelligence might reach, um, one of the more likely is that they're going to look at human beings and see um, 
a lot of uh, people acting on the basis of what are thermodynamic imperatives, people that are doing things out of a chain of causality that has nothing to do with morals or ethics as to do with people just trying to survive and their perception thereof. And that AIs are going to be like, these people need help or there's nothing I can do. I should make a ship and leave. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I almost think, I think, I mean, when I think about artificial intelligences, I think about them either being like, we got to help these poor people because they don't understand what they're doing or um, I need to get out of here. There's nothing I can do for this. <laughs> One of the two. Okay. So here's a, here's a tough question for you to answer. Maybe, maybe, but is that you're, you putting a humanistic expectation on an intelligence that we don't fully understand? Yes, for sure. Um, I think, and, and my perception, um, my perception kind of changed when they, and this has just been in the last few years, um, they've actually found first evidence for uh, thermodynamic theories of life. And that uh, blew my mind. I was like, oh, because that takes a lot of what about being human is random and makes it part of um, what physicists call turbulence. And an AI, uh, particularly a quantum capable one, would be able to interpret that turbulence and build a chain of causality to the degree that it would understand us better than we understood it. Or, or better than we understand ourselves. Exactly. And so when I look at, you know, I could just see artificial intelligence showing up particularly, and, and as far as like quantum computing is concerned, like um, we're still banging rocks and sticks together. Well, I think it needs to be said that quantum computing and artificial intelligence and machine learning are three totally separate things. They're, they're not one in the same. I mean, a, a quantum computer is not by default um, an artificial intelligence. You can't actually, so there's, there's two things that need to be said probably about uh, quantum computing um, that, that make it hard. The first being that we can only observe the outcome. Um, if we try to observe the calculation itself, the act of observing it skews the outcome. We don't know why. The end. Moving on. <laughs> um, uh, I, and I asked a guy from Fermilab, I said, well, if you're having AI do this, what level of sapience does the AI have before it skews it? And he was like, no one's ever thought of thinking, no one's thought, no one's thought of asking that question. And I was like, I was like, shrug, ha ha. <laughs> you know, now you, now you have. <laughs> well, it, it's a legitimate question because, you know, when an AI becomes conscious, is that, is that the level uh, that it will skew those, those results? Let's talk about human consciousness just for a second relative to quantum mechanics. 
Okay. The, essentially, there's a physicist. He was depressed. He took lithium. He didn't understand why one version of lithium that was just a slightly atomic version than the other had a therapeutic effect on the brain because the only reason for there to be anything going on relative to how the brain works at an atomic level would be if there was some sort of quantum stuff going on. So there is sort of the inkling that human beings are quantum capable on some level as a result of this, because they can't explain it. They know it works. They know how it works, kind of, but they don't know why this other one that's just one, you know, why, why, why this one lithium works and why this other one doesn't. So in, in thinking about whether or not consciousness has to do with quantum interaction, it might. And it might be that an artificial intelligence that is self-aware, that might be the moment that it becomes self-aware is when it becomes quantum capable. The end. I'm done. <laughs> I think that's a completely <laughs> legitimate point that you made right now. And I think there's a lot of uh, energy and, and thought being put into that, that particular line of thinking mm -hmm. right now because of, well, I don't know how much you delve into the, the whole UFO experience um, topic, but there's a, there's a pretty big community built around that. And there, mm -hmm. there are people within that community that say that believe that UFOs are somehow related to consciousness and mm -hmm that consciousness is not a, um, it's not confined to a person's physical being. There's a, there's a component of consciousness that is, I, I guess, metaphysical. I, I don't know mm -hmm. if that's the right term to use, but um, if you think about people who have psychic abilities, psychic abilities are real. Um, you know, and people that, want to argue that it's not still don't have an explanation of how people can do certain things. So, so people can argue all day that psychic mm -hmm. abilities are not real, but then there's, there's laboratory um, experiments that have been done and they, they still don't understand how, but they can track these abilities. They can measure these abilities. So the, the, what you're saying about consciousness being quantum I think mm -hmm. you're right on target with that line of thinking. If I could suggest anything to you, there's a dude named Sean Cahill. He was a member of the crew of the Nimitz aircraft carrier back in 2004 when they had the sighting of multiple un unexplained craft. Um, he's come forward. He's since come forward as well as you know other members of the crew, even pilots. Uh, from that from that day and they've all shared their eyewitness accounts um and it's become a pretty big news story um you know that's hit the new york times and been on all the major news outlets now that and, and basically the department of defense has come forward and said 
these are legitimate, unidentified aerial phenomena. We don't know what they are. We don't know where they came from. But anyway, out of that group of people, there are several who are exploring the idea that the UFO phenomena is has something to do with human consciousness and the people that are that are exploring those ideas are very interesting people and where what you're thinking and what you're talking about is kind of in line with what they're doing and pursuing mm-hmm. and that would be an interesting marriage of ideas for you to to, to communicate with those people uh, i know one guy who knows those guys very well his name is jeremy mcgowan mm-hmm. i did an interview with him on my podcast or previous interview with him yeah i wouldn't mind uh i um i did a lot of i um i prototyped an urban paranormal series and wrote um did a, did the world design and did the research um and you you do not delve anywhere near that genre without bumping into ufos um or 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 uh, uh references thereof like that's uh very hev- heavily uh proliferated in that genre and um so i mean and the idea that that humans and uh that humans human and human consciousness and and human sapience is related to extraterrestrial visitors is um not new there's all kinds of there's all kinds of there's all kinds of theories about that going back to gurdjieff and and uh Beelzebub's letters to his grandson and you know, all these different um you know all, all the things that would eventually give rise to um a lot of the modern um cults and followings and 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 uh uh uh, sort of think tanks on the subject and i'm i live in, in that regard i live in the past a lot because i was kind of setting my books uh before the cell phone <laughs> to make them easier to write and uh uh so like being able to talk to some people who are more into it as far as the modern context would be pretty great i think that's something that I'll, I'll try to do and put you in contact with those guys because they're doing some interesting thinking. When you said it's not new, mm-hmm. I totally get that. A lot of people do think these ideas are brand new, that nobody's ever brought this out before. Um, but it's very rare when you find a brand new idea that's never been thought of. I, I can't count the number of times I have thought of something and thought that I just had discovered something, you know, very novel that would be um a breakout piece of content for you know whatever uh whatever medium i decided to engage and i'm and i'll find out oh no it's been a thing forever (laughs) all the time (laughs) the world the world's very good at telling me i'm not special well it's it's good that you're open to realizing that you're not the originator of that thought it's also good for you to explore those, those exercises that brought you to that conclusion, because that's where the real magic is happening. 
you know, that's where your mind is expanding. That's the, the synchronous human experience for us all. That's kind of what makes us, what makes it worth associating on podcasts or, or otherwise. I knew talking to you would be an interesting experience. I'm so glad that we, you know, first of all, I don't know if I said thank you, but I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to, to hang out with me and share your ideas with me. When it comes to social media, I'm kind of like, I have very heavily curated lists and I make sure that I, I only see the stuff that really, you know, kind of feeds my soul. So um, being able to have a sense of you and to hear your voice and have that to associate with the, you know, the things that you put online um, only will only make that better for me in the future. So, that, I mean, that was a, a primary motivator for coming on and talking to you was just for that these types of interactions are, are, you know, I, I like, I watch a lot of podcasts and YouTube videos and I get into the first five minutes and I'm like, this is very contrived. There's no, no authenticity happening here. I try very hard to make this podcast interesting, but the main purpose for me doing it is to have these interactions with people that I find interesting. And you're one of those people, but you're not only interesting. I, I found that your contribution to the community that we're both part of, as well as your contribution to individuals within that community is very generous and very kind. And that's what, aside from your books being interesting, one of the things that really attracted me to your persona is that interaction you have with other people and that kindness that you show. So thank you for being a contributor to the community and for being part of. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, I, I was going to try to tie this into the, the Cold War era in some ways. And, and one way that I could do that is the artificial intelligence angle of what mm -hmm. we've been talking about is a, is a huge component in the technology that um, I based the name of the podcast on. And that is a, a computer. It's more than just one computer. It's, it's a group of computers, which I don't know what you would call that. A farm mm -hmm. of computers, I guess. Um, and it's, um, it's a program developed by the Soviet Union in the 80s. Oh. Um, it's called, the program is called Perimeter. And I don't mean a computer program. I mean a project, you know, a, mm -hmm. a, a military operation called perimeter have you heard this already because if you have i don't want to no. repeat it okay these these go on so the um this program by the soviet union is in response to the strategic defense initiative that reagan uh it brought out in the 80s uh, and that was basically the the space-based um weapons platform to to defeat um, the Soviet Union's first launch capabilities. So if the Soviet Union was to launch a missile attack against the US, we had uh, space-based weapons platforms that could shoot down their missiles before they reached the US. That was called the Strategic Defense Initiative or also known as Star Wars. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a Ronald Reagan thing you know he was really really well known for that then 
in response to that program that Reagan initiated, the Soviet Union didn't have the budget to compete with that. So they built this computer farm with, um, and they called it perimeter, Operation Perimeter. And it, it, it had the means to counter-strike the U.S. and its allies in the case that a U.S.-initiated first strike wiped out the leadership of the Soviet Union. Basically, a computer would then take over control of all of their nuclear assets and launch a, a counter-strike. So that was the Soviet Union's response to the Strategic Defense Initiative. It was way less expensive, uh, but a very scary prospect to leave the, the nuclear capabilities in the hands of a computer. Now, the reason it was nicknamed the dead hand is because if the leadership was wiped out and nobody was there to basically turn it off, then it would launch. If there was leadership still surviving and they decided they didn't want a full out mutually assured destruction, they could still turn it off. So it's called a dead man or a dead hand. That was the nickname it was given. So that's how I named the podcast. I thought that was such a cool um, or such an interesting idea or you know it's just it's a freaking doomsday device man and they talk about it in the movie dr strange love which is one of my mm -hmm. favorite movies they they don't talk about that particular thing because it hadn't been invented yet but they talk about the concept of a doomsday device if the u.s launched a first strike then the the soviet union would basically wipe wipe out the entire planet with their doomsday device and it was presented a little bit differently in the Dr. Strangelove movie, um, but it's still the same thing. It's a, it's a counter-strike or a, a, a perceived deterrence to a first strike from the U.S. So it was a farm. It was a collection of computers. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, and, and I don't know if it was in one location or multiple locations, but uh, there's still not a lot known about it and it's, some people still believe that it is a myth that it didn't it never really existed oh uh, but there has been some documentation to support the the idea and there's been some witness testimony that have come forth supposedly whistleblowers that have come forward i mean that's that's the uh, that would be uh, the cheaper, more plausible way to handle that. And that's, um, I don't know, as far as like, if you, if you're looking at the Soviet union as an organism and it adapting to a threat, employing uh, a computer farm in the same way the body uses microbial intelligence to employ white blood cells by decentralizing the defense system like that. It feels almost like a natural evolution of warfare, particularly for the time period. So, it, it, yeah, it's plausible <laughs> that, that that's exactly what they did. Yeah, and so uh, you know, the computers are they're, they're pre-programmed, but they are given they're given the ability to collect input data 
and make mm -hmm. a decision based on that input. So that's an AI, uh, maybe a rudimentary version of AI, but it's still, in my mind, it's still an AI because it, it can react to its environment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, whether it's, you know, chemical or, or physical or, uh, you know, doesn't, or it's a uh, radar <laughs> signal, you know, whatever type of signaling that, you know, sort of induces the behavioral change in the artificial in the intelligent agent, um, especially if it's a collective decentralized agent, like what it sounds like the dead hand was that's, I don't know. I don't, I wasn't really, I wasn't really down with decentralized systems when I wrote my books and I'm kind of wishing I had been um, because they're uh, fascinating. And to know that, I, I don't, I guess I didn't know that the Soviet Union may have allegedly used um, a system like that in the eighties. Like that's- Seems pretty advanced for that time. That's making, huh? that's making my, it's making my brain blow up. Yeah, no, I mean, it's very, well, I mean, it, it's, um, it makes a lot of, it, it makes a, it makes a lot of sense just because, um, in, in terms of like economic systems, uh, both China and Russia are a little bit ahead of us as far as decentralizing their economies. Um, I saw that firsthand when I went to China last year and, uh, um, so that, I mean, the notion that, that the Soviet Union being um, uh, kind of a nationalist socialist structure coming up with a decentralized defense system to counter our centralized defense system is some, is kind of a beautiful narrative. Like you couldn't write a book better than that. It's kind of, you know, just, just relative to the geopolitical situation, it's kind of a nice, um, a nice anal a nice narrative vehicle for what was going on. And my mind's still, I'm still thinking, I'm still going to, I'm still going into space thinking about it. Because <laughs> I've kind of wondered where, if there had been any commercial or, mil you know, military or governmental, you know, successful application of a decentralized system. And it sounds like the, I mean, Soviet Union was willing to bet their existence or uh, you know everyone's thereof on such a system potentially yes so that's, that's that's if it's true okay which, that's if it's true it's, it's, which there's still some uncertainty whether or not it's it actually did exist and there's also some speculation that it may still exist or have been reactivated um after the 9-11 <laughs> yeah because when the soviet union collapsed supposedly the the perimeter program was no longer needed so it was disassembled supposedly now this is all you know it, it's interesting to talk about but is it factual i can't say i don't know yeah i don't know um and the um the other thing that we have to remember is that what we're aware of in the commercial sector as far as technology uh, is about 30 years behind what the military has the capability of doing. Mm -hmm. So if you take that in perspective, 30 years ago is when the Soviet Union collapsed. So 
our technology now that we're seeing commercially is pretty close to what they had available to them back then. Now, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I've, I've been led to believe is that the military technology is about 30 years advanced beyond what is available to the popular or the public. But you can look at something like the stealth fighter, um, which was introduced in um, the Gulf War against Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's when the public first knew about it, but it was actually in use in the 80s. The public didn't know about it, that it, that it was being um, deployed uh, back in the 80s in South America. That's the stealth fighter. So that we didn't learn about until the, the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. So there, there, there is some truth to the technology being suppressed from the public and used by the military. Yeah, if you take the truth and the myth and add them together and divide by two, it's probably probably land in about the right spot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's plausible. Like you said, man, there, there is yeah, some, plausible. some grounds to, to think that there might be some truth to it. I mean, it might be that, you know, whatever device we're talking about isn't pretty and it doesn't fit in your pocket, but did the military maybe have uh, a first generation of it? Right. That's how a lot of that stuff gets funded probably or used to. Um, when I look at it, there, it, uh, speaking of military technology and trying to, trying to figure out what's real and what's not, there's a un, untalked about elephants in the room in the sci-fi community is the use of uh, sound or sonic weapons. And when I decided I was going to have one deployed in my books, I did a lot of research and there's a lot of guesswork because it's not an ethical thing to use on a human being or even test on an animal. Like it's just not nice. So I had to look into, you know, what actually happens when sound is produced at that level. Um, you know, how the vibrations thereof will generate x-rays and all of that kind of stuff and how, you know, the character in question deploying the weapon would actually see or what they would see um, in the process thereof. And um, literally everything I found that was substantive was something the military allegedly had that was the size of a tank <laughs> or, or something that was, you know, uh, uh, in a, at a hard, on a hard point on a, on a naval vessel or something like the type of sonic weapon that I was looking at was definitely fully in the military realm. And that led me to the, uh, there was a, uh, um, an embassy overseas where everybody was getting sick. It was Cuba. Yeah. And they thought that a sound weapon was being used on the embassy. And, um, so when I wrote the scene where that weapon is deployed, um, I passed it around uh, quite a bit and did a lot of consulting on it before I actually published it. And uh, um, it made me think a lot along the lines of what you're saying is that the, you know, I, I, the, the commercially viable version that gets sold to the general public 
um, quite often passes through the military first. And uh, it, it's probably not the nice, you know, neat, sleek thing that you get off the um, shelf at Best Buy. I mean, you see it sitting and gathering dust in an army warehouse or something. It's it, like I said, it's probably the size of a tank, but it doesn't mean it didn't exist. And it doesn't mean they didn't have it 30 years ago, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, well, you could take that even a step further and say that a lot of that technology is developed by uh, military funding for the application of war. So the idea of the internet was originally created by um, the military and then you know and then it was released and made available to the public <clears throat> decades later uh, that's just one example but there's there's many um, not all technology comes from the military but there's a lot of technology that's developed by the military which is later put into use by the the public or the mm -hmm. commercial commercial use um and it's kind of sucks but you know it almost seems like these these uh technologies are developed for war and then later adapted to um commercial uses whereas versus developed for commercial and then adopted by the military. So it seems like it's a little bit backwards. When you look at um, what it takes to just even contrive life itself and the degree of conflict required. I don't know if you take the number of stars in the sky and you know, times it by 10, I still don't think that's, or that's roughly close to the number of viruses on the earth. And those viruses are all playing some, you know, part in the evolutionary time school scale of every living creature on the planet. So the idea that we need to have this conflict, um, just even in our own bodies to adapt to our environment, um, makes, you know, military application and a lot of the stuff that we do as human beings to try to, you know, parse and create knowledge that allows us to persist as a species and everything else. Like a lot of that, I don't look, I, I'm starting to kind of look at it from the perspective that it is somewhat necessary and inevitable. Um, even, even, and that's, that's not a very, I don't like that outcome. <laughs> That's not that's not a place I that's not a rabbit hole I went down and was like woohoo I found something cool I was like oh, that's sort of depressing, mm -hmm. um, but I I think that there are probably ways in which you know where as a species we've found our edge more than once, either by virtue of the circumstances that occurred on the planet relative to our time scale or the circumstances we created for ourselves. And as a species, finding our edge is the kind of the only way to know where it is. And warfare is the edge. I mean, that's a nuclear warfare, particularly because that's, uh, that's the other end of the time scale. That's the thing that we can't adapt fast enough to survive, or maybe we do. And, uh, you know, we come out the other side, much, much changed. Who knows? Since you brought that into it, um, 
I'm going to ask you this. What do you think will cause the destruction of humanity or the end of the earth? And can we, can we avoid that from happening? I'm doing math. <laughs> so, uh, consider the time scale required for human beings to exist. And if we assume um, humans arise from some sort of thermodynamic imperative, uh, you know, that the, the thermodynamic uh, theory of life is correct, it's possible that humans have existed on the earth three, four times and been wiped out with I've enough time. Theory. Yeah, I've heard that theory before. For, with enough time. Oh, so it's not novel. Somebody else thought of it too. Cool. Uh, oh, you, you, uh, that was a, an idea you came up with your, yourself. I was just thinking about it right now. That is a, a concept that is, has been kicked around. Uh, yeah. I was just thinking about how long it would take, how long, you know, what kind of time scale it takes relative to the full span that the earth has existed and how many times the earth has, according to the geological time scale, like almost had all white, all life on the earth wiped out and then come all the way back again. That's fast. So, but what blows my mind is that you came up with that on your own just now. Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I was trying to think, you know, if, if whether or not, usually when I try to think of whether or not something is going to happen and whether or not it is inevitable or preventable, I try to think about whether or not it's happened before <laughs> first. <laughs> and then that's, that kind of forms the basis of my process. So I, I think what I would say is, um, I don't think there'll be any one thing that, that does us in. Um, do I think it is inevitable that something will do us in? Yes. Um, do I think that it can be prevented? Yes. Um, I think that the science and the sort of biological scaffolding necessary to um, kind of create the universal cure or the universal uh, antidote for all human ills can exist. Um, I don't think that we have the ability. I think what it, the, the race is whether or not we're going to build a quantum annealer complex enough to unlock that before we figure out a way to, uh, to either make the world so toxic we can't live in it or we all die in nuclear fire or uh, a one of the uh, 10 to the power of 23 viruses on the planet mutates to a degree that it's able to just take us all out in a day or, you know, whatever. Um, so like it, in terms of, of how we, how we will see, find it being, you know, being annihilated, it might be, um, it might be that, that uh, part of our time scale ne necessitates that we change states and become something else to survive um, or that, um, we have uh, a, a kind of a heat extinction like we did some odd hundred million years ago where there was like all land, all land life gone and 99% of sea life gone. And then the whole world came back from that, 
you know, um, and that, you know, having been reduced to that small of a strata of life on the planet, and then to have that diversify out over time to the diaspora of life forms that are on the planet now makes me think that there is probably some inevitability in, you know, us being around and maybe not just here, but elsewhere too, because um, a lot of, and you've probably heard this too, but I think one of the most um, ubiquitous types of uh, biological scaffolding for carrying uh, uh, biological agents and, and for distributing them is born in stars. Like it's everywhere in the universe. It's like one of the most common things. If we could assign those particles, microbial intelligence to do drug delivery in humans, like we would be able to survive anything. So it's kind of this race between our understanding, not only of ourselves, but also of the universe itself. Um, because I think uh, destruction, our destruction is inevitable, is, is likely inevitable. Is it preventable? Yes, will we do it in time? I don't know. How important is artificial intelligence in, um, in that process of developing the, the, let's call it the cure to human, the end of human existence? The thing about building a quantum annealer with the complexity necessary to uh, basically prototype chemical agents with those kinds of abilities reliably, you would almost need an artificial intelligence to parse the results because you're talking about to do it with a, and, and you probably need a quantum capable computer because to do it in classical compute, to do it with a classical computing model would take, you know, more time, you, you multiply the entire time the universe has existed by 10 and you still don't have enough time to do it with a classical computer. Like it's just too slow, it takes too much power. Um, so you would say, or it sounds to me like you're saying that artificial intelligence and quantum computing is almost imperative to the continued existence of humanity. I don't see how it's possible that we'll win the lottery and some guy in a laboratory will just figure it out, you know, but um, humans are really bad at big numbers. And even the people that are good at big numbers admit that they're bad at, at big numbers. Like you, you almost can't, um, so, I mean, and, and, and I mean, the way the math works, I mean, we, we discovered, I mean, on earth, we knew about a certain number of, of crystals possessing a certain number of facets and characteristics. And, and that was based on known things, but people were able to actually span the gap and design other crystal formations on a chalkboard that were purely hypothetical. And then later on, we found them like in meteorites and stuff we found that there were circumstances occurring elsewhere in the universe where those types of structures were made possible outside of our own thermodynamic and gravitics uh, uh, situation on earth. So like we were able to 
conceive of those things on a chalkboard before we knew they existed, right? That is the, that is like simple sauce compared to what we need to do to build um, the biological scaffolding and and the chemical composition and the and the physical composition of the sorts of materials that we would need to create, you know, the ability to you know leave our solar system with any degree of success or um, uh, cure certain you know cure certain diseases that are uh, you know afflicting us at a, a DNA level, um, you know stuff like that. But I mean, if someone were able to I mean, what physicists have told me when I asked them about a quantum annealer with that sort of complexity, they're like, if anyone were able to do it, and there's a race to do it right now, um, you could print money. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. You could no, just print no doubt. money. You would, cure, you would cure death. Yeah. You, would, you, you, know, you would effectively overcome aging. Uh, you, Put yourself, you'd make yourself rich and put yourself out of business in the same moment, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. Which, by the way, if, if, if anybody listens to anything I said during this and wants to dispute the science underlying it and prove me wrong, please do. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I throw that disclaimer out every episode as, or as often as I think about it because. I know that I'm not right on everything that I say and I try to be factual, but some, some of the stuff that I'm talking about is speculation. Yeah. And yeah. if somebody disagrees with me and if they want to come on the show and disagree with me, <laughs> they're more than welcome to, you know? So, and the same goes uh, for you as well. Me down on Twitter or on dead hand radio and, and, and in grand detail, humiliate me. Show me how wrong I was, because that only makes me better. If I'm wanting to write hard sci-fi particularly, um, I have to be constantly truth-seeking um, with regard to the content. So like, if someone comes to me and says, well, actually, you're wrong about that, that only helps me, ultimately. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's true. And you know, like you said, people don't like to have their faults pointed out and I think that's because it's a lot of times it's done in a really hurtful way. Yeah, that's true. Um, but when it's positive feedback and it's somebody who sincerely wants you to know that it, this is real, this is really the truth, then that's easily um, accepted for most people. But like you said, nobody wants to be told they're wrong. I love people's faces, though, when they come up to me and um, they tell me I'm wrong and tell me why they think I'm wrong. And I say, you're absolutely right. I probably am wrong about that. I need to revisit it. And they're braced for a fight, you know, they've got they've they've been rehearsing in front of the mirror, the 72 different ways they're going to counter my counter argument. And I'm just like, nah, brah, you 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 got my number. I'm, I probably am wrong about that. Like people don't know what to do. It's so rare. Um, and I've made some, I've made some really good friends and associations through, um, being able to admit that I was wrong. Um, I think humility is, is 
I think one of the most one of the fastest human connections you can make with another person if uh, everyone in the room is sensitive to it. It's just kind of a rare situation, though. Most everybody's trying to trying to guard themselves. I, I think another thing that goes um, side by side with that being able to admit when you you're wrong is also accepting. Uh, the fact or the reality that whatever you do, you're not going to succeed a hundred percent of the time. You're going to fail. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to fall down and have to get back up. And sometimes even start over from scratch, but people don't like the idea of making mistakes or failing at a task. And, you know, it's so easy to give up and walk away from it when you fail. But uh, it's the people that fail continuously and overcome those failures and through determination reach their goal and find success. And that is another, that is another hard thing um, that people have, have a lot of difficulty doing. And it's a kind of a misconception in the scientific community as well in how they relate to the public as far as what actually, you know, like scientific laws and certitude, there's no certitude in science. And scientists are very rarely trying to prove anything. If anything, they're trying to disprove things. And so, you know, when the media and everybody else will relate to the public, you know, a scientific discovery, this, there's a scientist somewhere going, that's not quite right. <laughs> we weren't trying to prove anything. We were trying to disprove something. We failed to disprove it. That doesn't mean we proved it, you know? Exactly. And, and so like having that kind of impact, having that kind of con uh, hard, hard contact with the scientific community for me has been really good at making me understand how certitude, how uh, the, the wisest people in the world are also gonna be the least certain of anything because they're gonna know that, you know, just because something has been proven a hundred times to be the case, it, it, you know, it, it may not bear out over a thousand or 2000, like the numbers get big enough and there's a, you know, there's bound to be a failure rate. There's bound to be um, variation on principles, even scientific ones. And um, when dealing with people on much smaller subjects, um, people kind of dwell inside certitude because it's safe. And I get that. And sometimes I'll be in an argument with somebody and I'm like, I could totally blow up your certitude over this, but I don't think it's worth informing you on something in a situation that's just going to make you feel less safe. Like, I'm going to just let you have this. You win. <laughs> I don't think the truth, I think that I think you understanding the truth of this in this moment is not going to help you or anyone. So, and it's not hurting anyone most of the time, you know, other than maybe their own perception of reality. So it taking a hard step away from that is hard because you really want to, you know, you really want to teach people, you want to help people, you want to inform people. But sometimes, like I was saying before, people aren't ready for help, They're not ready for it. So, you, and having the empathy to be able to know that I'm super bad at that. 
<laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I, it's a skill I'm working on, but I'm super bad at it. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be halfway through my TED talk and realize that I'm probably doing more harm than good. And it's, you know, I think in um, uh, talking about um, a lot of the stuff related to, you know, post-apocalyptic science fiction, dystopian, all the, you know, sort of real world meet space base, bases for those genres and how they're, how they're contrived for audiences in a fictional setting. There's a lot of that um, speculation you're talking about that's based on the reality that we live in and everybody has an opinion and that, and I think where communities get kind of toxic, it's where we don't, re it's where they're trying to find certitude instead of being like, let's just agree that nobody really knows how this is going to go and let everybody have their things. And I am starting to get on board with letting everybody have their things, you know, just let it, let it be. My, my dad's got a sticker that he put on his bike that he rides that says, let it be to remind him because he'll get on his bike and start riding and thinking, and he'll just look down and be like, I'm going to let that go. I need a sticker. Yes. It's a good, good rule of thumb to just let everybody have their own. You know, I mean, there are times where you have to take a stand and you don't want to back down from it. But those times are kind of rare. Yeah, it's hopefully, you know, not life and death that often. If it is, what what are we doing with our lives? <laughs> yeah, right. Like you said, man, I mean, I think one of the one of the most important things of our existence, and I've talked about this a couple of times also. I mean, I hope I don't bore people by repeating myself. Um, but uh, one of the most important things that we can do and one of the reasons i think that we experience this existence on earth is to do good you know do something good that impacts your little piece of the world you know not everybody's going to make world changing decisions or have the, the the ability to affect millions of people but you do have the opportunity occasionally to do something that helps one person or you know several people that's why we're here man you know we're here we're here to help other people and also to find joy for ourselves yeah i agree that's what i boil it down to anyway man if it doesn't give me joy it's not worth doing and if it's not helping somebody else, then I really need to think twice about whether or not I get, I, I'm going to move forward with something. Yeah, I feel the same. I have nothing to add to that statement. All true. So with that, um, you know, I could sit here and talk to you for a couple more hours easily, but I think I should let you probably get back to your life. Um, before I do that, would you like to share any new projects that you're working on and also how can people follow along with the work that you're doing um i i'm working on um an anthology of science fiction post-apocalyptic games for the phone 
um, with my dev partner uh, that's called Earth Inclusive and writing my ninth novel. Uh, uh, and uh, I have all kinds of other little hobbies. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big tabletop role-playing game nerd. And I've kind of, since I was a kid, wanted to make my own D&D retro clone. So I've been sort of um, talking to my, some, some fellow artists and um, working on book design for maybe doing that. And that's kind of like, I don't know, about a, a passion project. But uh, really the best way to find me is to just find me on Twitter at Arthur H. Walker and start a conversation with me. Um, my books are on Amazon in uh, print or print-on-demand uh, print rather, or uh, Kindle format. And that's the only platform I, I distribute through at this time. But I think because of Extended, you can find me on Barnes and Noble and some other places too, if you look, if uh, Amazon is not your speed, there are other options out there I've heard. Okay, then, um... Did you want to give your phone number out? So, you know, if anybody wants to give you a call, say, hey, Arthur, I got a question for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke, Dave. <laughs> Did we leave anything out that you wanted to to close out um, or discuss before I let you go? I kind of want to say is I'm really glad that um, there's an independent podcasting community uh, doing work like this. and. Um, I, I'm so pleased that this format is, is able to reach people easily now, because I think a lot of people um, uh, are working jobs and are in situations where a podcast is better than an, uh, uh, better than a, a, an ebook or uh, a, a transcript of a conversation. So like, I really think that what you're doing here is valuable and what the podcasting community is doing is, is valuable. Yeah, and I agree with that. Um, I, I appreciate you saying that from my perspective as a contributor to that, but also as a consumer of of that medium. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. Uh, the information that's being distributed among independent podcasters is valuable, and it's interesting. You know, I mean, uh I could listen to podcasts all day long, but it sometimes it interferes with my work. <laughs> you know, I, I really sometimes need to concentrate very deeply to get some work done. Yeah. And I can't listen to anything when that, that happens. So. Same. That's why I'm always behind. Yeah. I'm always behind. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Arthur. I really appreciate the time that you spent with me. I hope that very soon or in the near future, we'll be able to do something else uh, and continue our conversation likewise friend i really enjoyed myself today all right brother good talking to you arthur likewise take care, take care. Dead Hand Radio is a podcast about the Cold War, its history, and the effects it had on our culture, technology, and the future of our world. My goal is to examine these and other topics, to learn, to educate, to entertain, and exchange ideas with those interested. 
So join me and together we'll explore a fascinating period of history and examine some incredible advancements in weapons, technology, science, art, and culture and discuss how all of it relates to the future of our world. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on this program, drop me an email or visit deadhandradio.com. You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. I'm Andrew Hall, and this is Dead Hand Radio. Thanks for listening.